Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An Internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Philippe Matthews Show radio show. Thank you for tuning in and listening. I have another legend with me today. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Amos C. Brown uh, is known uh, among world leaders, presidents, celebrities, and uh, uh, academes. Uh, for his trademark activism and intellectual discipline and masterful oratory. Uh, he is really, truly a legend in his own time. He was tutored by, now listen to this, ladies and gentlemen, he was tutored by Medgar Evers, Benjamin Mays, Samuel Williams, J. Pius Barber, uh, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as one of the eight students in the only class that Dr. King taught in his lifetime at Morehouse College. He's a senior pastor at Third Baptist Church of San Francisco and currently president of the National uh, the NAACP chapter in San Francisco, and he's been uh, celebrating. Uh, I was, I was uh, privileged to uh, be a guest of Dr. Uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Uh, Durley, uh, Gerald Durley, uh, uh, it, last Sunday, uh, celebrating 40 years of ministry with with Dr. Amy. And actually, I believe the last past Sunday, uh, he celebrated 50 years of marriage to his lovely wife, Jane Smith Brown. How are you, my good doctor? I'm doing very well, thank you, and uh, the same for you. Thank you so much. So, so, you know, there's so much to talk about, but one of the things that we want to look at in your history, and, and, and a lot of uh, young people really need to um, uh, know this story and, and, and embrace this story, and that is, uh, well, one, your journey to the civil rights movement uh, that, that got you on uh, the Freedom Bus and that entire event uh, of that changed world history. Before we get into that, talk to me. About, you, you, you're from uh, Jackson, Mississippi, is that right? Yes, I was born at 128 East Coheed Street in Jackson. And that street is in the midst of the Fire Street Historical District, which is, which is one of the largest African-American historical districts in the nation. Wow! Wow! Um, how many? Uh, uh, what was childhood like for you, uh, brothers and sisters? I had four brothers and uh, three sisters, and there are just three of us who are uh, still living. Mm. Um, my two sisters and, of course, uh, uh, myself. The three. Um. You went to uh, Morehouse, uh, and you also went to uh, Crozer Theological Seminary. What, uh, which one came first, and uh, why the choice 
Uh, well, of course, uh, Morehouse came first. <clears throat> okay. And um, I should back up and say that uh, my um, developmental track was defined by um, a response to oppression and racism. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on August 28th, 1955, mm. that the body of Emmett Till surfaced. Mm. This lad who was murdered by two white racists because allegedly he whistled at a white woman. And when I picked up that jet magazine and saw this swollen, grotesque, mutilated body, as a 14-year-old or two, I was horrified. Mm. And I went to Mr. Mega Evers, who was the first field secretary for the NACP in the state of Mississippi, mm-hmm. and told him how bad those men were, how unjust their actions were. And Mr. Evans said to me, well, Amos, we shouldn't just get mad and be sad. We must be smart and do something about it. He said, why don't you organize a youth council at the NACP and you'll be a part of a national movement where you see the NACP youth department was founded by Ms. Juanita Jackson Mitchell, the wife of Clarence Mitchell, who Clarence Mitchell was the um, lobbyist for the NACP mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill, and was very involved back in the day, around the time that Thurgood Marshall and others were fighting in the judicial system to get that Supreme Court decision that outlawed segregation in public education. So I became a part of that national movement Uh and founded, I repeat, the first youth council in the state of Mississippi. Uh And then in 1956, Mr. Evers approached my mother and asked her if I could come with him and um, two other persons, Ms. Della Irvin, who was advisor to the Gramlin University College Chapter of NACP, and Ms. Luella Bender, who was the daughter of Reverend W.A. Bender, who's college minister of Tuglu College. Mm-hmm. and was one of the pioneers who fought for the right to vote in Mississippi back in the 40s. And he even went to the um, 
the Senate, and along with other blacks, and testified against that infamous character Theodore G. Bilbo, who bragged about how he paid folks to lynch and tar and feather black people to keep them from voting. Mm. Well, we came across the country, the four of us, in a 55 Oldsmobile mm-hmm. that Mr. Evans had just purchased. And it was my opportunity to attend the first National Convention of NACP. It was the 47th Annual Convention here in San Francisco. Mm. And also, I was privileged to meet for the first time Ms. Rosa Parks and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King spoke for Youth Night. Um, he was only 26 years old then. He, many people have to understand that Dr. King was not an old man when he led that movement in Montgomery. Mm. And they were the uh, honored guests of the convention. And we celebrated their victory that came in December of 1955 that was an incredible experience, one that I shall never forget. And it was on that Wednesday night that I heard Dr. King say in the peroration, the conclusion of his masterful address, I have the dream that the day will come when all of God's children, from base black to trouble white, will be significant on the Constitution's keyboard. And I have a copy of that speech, the full text, still in my possession. Wow. And knowing, too, that Dr. King went to Morehouse and one of the deacons in my church, College Hill Baptist Church, uh, Dr. B.B. Dansby, who was also... Uh, president of Jackson State College, which was right near uh, my second home house at 1521 Morehouse Street. Mm. Well, I was surrounded by the name Morehouse (laughs) and the legacy of Dr. Henry L. Morehouse, Mm -hmm. whom Morehouse College is named for. See, Jackson College was a... um, uh, school, one of those historical black schools that were founded uh, after the Civil War during Reconstruction. And uh, Morehouse Street was named for Dr. Dansby. That street is right there near Jackson State University. And I saw Dr. Dansby in church on Sunday, and I was always impacted and impressed by this uh, elegant, um, eloquent man and the word was around the hood so to speak that he was a Morehouse man mm. and I never never lost sight of going to Morehouse and I got my baccalaureate degree from Morehouse 
Honey was there, as you indicated in, in the introduction, that Dr. King taught his first and only class after he graduated from Boston University with his Ph.D. degree in systematic theology. And there were eight of us who were chosen by Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays because we were student leaders. You see, when I got to Morehouse, I I wasn't playing catch-up. I was already part of the movement going back to 1955 Mm -hmm. from Mississippi. And uh, Dr. Mays had suggested to Dr. King that when Dr. King left Montgomery to come home to join his father as co-pastor at Ebenezer in 1960, Dr. Mays said to him that he should come aside, do some reflecting and teaching before he went to the next stage in the civil rights movement. Uh And this course in social philosophy was a course that was designed for those of us who were students who had the raw engagement in the struggle. Mm-hmm. But it would provide an opportunity for us to further sharpen our intellectual wish and to uh, be more programmatic and disciplined mm-hmm. as we move forward in the movement. And I might say parenthetically that I thank God for my early involvement in this movement because it enabled me to get the whole struggle in historical perspective mm. and to get it accurately. You see, many people erroneously assume that the student sit-down movement, as it was called then, mm-hmm. Uh, that started in Greensboro, North Carolina, but it didn't. The first sit-down movement of that era was in 1958 Mm. in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Under the auspices and ages of the Oklahoma City Youth Council, Uh, the president of that youth council, who's still alive, and she uh, teaches at the University of Alabama at Huntsville, Alabama. Miss Barbara Posey was the president, and Miss Clara Looper, the late Clara Looper, was the advisor. Hmm. And you had uh, well over a hundred young people, elementary school through high school, who sat down. August the twenty-eighth. 1958, Hmm. and they broke down segregation at lunch counters in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. However, fast forward, Mm -hmm. it was in 1959 in New York City when the NACP celebrated its 50th anniversary that there was a whole busload of young people from Oklahoma City who came to the convention, and they were 
the highlight of the convention, and they made their reports on their success. Mm-hmm. And at that convention, there was a young man named Ezella Blair. And Ezella Blair was an alternate youth delegate to that convention. Mm-hmm. And that was the same year that I was elected in the same meeting, obviously, National Chairman of the Youth Work Committee. I was elected the youngest in the history of NCB Youth Work. Wow. And I presided over that meeting where they made their report. And Mr. Blair, I repeat, was so excited and impacted by what he heard that these young folks had done in Oklahoma City that he went back to Greensboro that fall, that September, as an interim freshman mm-hmm. at A&T. And he tried to get all the other students to to uh, emulate, to, uh, to repeat what had been done in Oklahoma City, but they were afraid. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get them to budge. Mm-hmm. However, it was on... February the 1st, 1960, that he was able to influence three others of his entering freshmen to go with him and sit down at that lunch counter. Mm. That is the history. And this is recorded in the file of the NACP at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. And I am trying to get finished with my memoirs next year to write that accurate history. And the title will be Before 1960. Mm. To bring people up to date to what happened. Yes. What happened in Mississippi. Yes. The state where we had more uh, lynchings. Than in the state before students sat down. Mm-hmm. What happened in Mississippi when Reverend George Washington Lee, who was president of the Belzoni, Mississippi branch of NACP, mm-hmm. and a pastor in Mississippi Delta, what happened? This man was murdered mm-hmm. on May the 7th. 1955, the same year that Emmett Till was murdered. Why was he murdered? Because the white folks in Humphreys County, Mississippi, didn't want Reverend Lee and his wife and his other parishioners to keep their names on the voting list Mm. in that county. You see, there were other people who died for the right to vote. Swanna, Goodman, and Cheney, yes. 1964 were murdered at Philadelphia, Mississippi. Two Jews and, and one black. Fine young men. But, I repeat, before 1960, there were many, many things happened. And in my memoirs, I will be given a chronology of the factual engagement of black people in the state of Mississippi Mm -hmm. 
who gave so much for the right to vote, for the right to a quality education, for the right to have health care, and all of the amenities that should be available for every American citizen. Mm. Walk me through, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Brown, walk me through, if you could, um, your experience uh, with the sit-down and the Freedom Bus. Well, I was, um, as a member in the sit-down movement, first arrested in Atlanta, Georgia, Hmm. 1960, along with Dr. King. Julian Bond, Lonnie King, and others. But before we sat down, I think every young person who's on the side of my voice, and an adult person too, should understand that our agitation, our demonstrations, were not informed and driven just by anger and emotion. Mm-hmm. Yes, we were hurt. Yes, we were angry. Yes, we were upset. Yes, we were uh, uh, impatient with racism. But before we sat down in Atlanta, when Dr. Mays and Dr. Rufus Clement at Atlanta University, Dr. Cunningham at Mars Brown, and Dr. Manley at Spellman, and... uh, uh, the other presidents, Dr. Richardson at ITC, when they heard um, that we were thinking about in 1960 doing the same thing that had been done in Oklahoma and what had been done in Greensboro, mm-hmm. they invited us to the, the Harkness Hall conference room and said, young people, we are not going to try and stand in your way as you seek to fight for justice. But we would ask you to do one thing. Create a committee of you who will sit down and write a document explaining why you are doing what you are doing so the world will know Mm. that you are youth of critical thought and you know what you're doing and why mm-hmm. you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I was part of that committee, along with Julian Bond and uh, the um, president director of the National Children's Defense Fund, Marion Wright Elderman, mm. um, who, along with others, founded the Freedom Schools, that are still going on providing educational opportunities for youth in urban communities. Uh, We sat down and we crafted this document. We didn't call it an appeal uh, document on civil rights. It was called an appeal on human rights. Mm -hmm. We were concerned about the rights of all people. Mm-hmm. Not just black folk. Mm. And that classic document is going to be on display at the opening of the new 
African American Museum in September mm. this fall. Uh, so that the Black Lives Matter movement, not all of them, but many of them today, I feel, are just angry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some are opportunistically mm-hmm. going out just to raise hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're not strategic, they're not consistent, and they do not make the effort to be collaborators mm-hmm. with all peoples so that we elevate the struggle mm-hmm. to the level of fulfilling what Dr. King taught us in that seminar in social philosophy. Mm-hmm. As he expounded the theory of personalism, he uh, learned that when he was at Boston University studying for his doctorate. Personalism says that every person is a child of God, uh, our maker, and to be respected as having worth and dignity. Mm -hmm. And whether it's gay or straight, black, brown, red, yellow, uh, we should not put down people because they're different. Uh-huh. As long as they're respecting others and they're doing unto others, they will have them do on, uh, on, unto oneself. We should not be such bigots uh-huh. as Donald Trump has been in his rhetoric, uh-huh. his attitude, uh-huh. as he's aspired for the highest office in this nation. And yet he's been mean He's shown himself to be unprincipled, and you would have people in this country who would be frightened enough, mean enough, selfish enough to be nationalistic and to generalize on people because of their race, their nationality, their gender, their sexual orientation, etc. That should have no place in a civilized human community. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thank God that sitting at the feet of Dr. King in that seminar, he impacted the eight of us Mm -hmm. to be the kind of a leader who would be concerned about the human rights of all people. Mm. Do you feel that uh, the the Black Lives Matter movement, um, uh, what what I have said many times, and I, we've, I've had many conversations about this with my melanated people, uh, that the civil rights movement, uh, it had an agenda. Uh, it was to change laws. Uh, it was to... Uh, create a movement and an act on Congress. It wasn't just, as you said, uh, uh, anger and, and, and just protesting for the sake of protesting. Uh, is there anything like that today? Um, well, I, I think, I think uh, they, they have an agenda, but, but they don't know how to, to articulate it. Okay, 
Okay. They don't know how to express it. Okay. They don't know how to share it with others. Mm. You see, you see, Doctor King uh, and I had the benefit of being conversant with Western thought, and yet we were not ashamed of our blackness. Mm -hmm. We're not ashamed of our, our unique and distinct uh, heritage as a descendant of Africa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we did not let heritage, culture, and history make us mediocre, mm -hmm. provincial. And, and yet we did not come out so arrogant mm -hmm. that we did not respect the worth and the dignity of other people and their culture and their histories. And that's the reason why I could not and I would not support conservative black preachers who've been bashing gay people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is wrong. It's unkind. It, it, it is not constitutional. Mm -hmm. See, black folks got their better day under that 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law. Mm -hmm. Equal means equal. And if we didn't want people discriminating against us because of our race, mm -hmm. it was my considered opinion, position, that we should not discriminate against people because of their gender, their sexual orientation, their religion, their physical handicap. Mm -hmm. That's that's not that's not Christ like. That's no. not God like. We all created in God's image. That's right. And if we created in, all in the image of God, God. I was taught in Sunday school in Mississippi, is love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing loving about beating up on and putting down people because they are different for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. As long as those people who are different are not messing with, not trying to destroy, not trying to take advantage of a minor or what have you, we should leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other thing that 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 um, black preachers going well the, the Catholic Church too, but specifically black preachers, because we've been more of the marginalized and the oppressed. We're going to have to answer to our makeup for, uh, and that is being chauvinistic and putting down women and saying women cannot preach. Mm -hmm. Now that nonsense is very heavy in the black church tradition. Yes, it is. And you, and yet the black church is about 60 to 70% female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what made you go into seminary? We understand Morehouse. What what caused you to go to, to Crozer Theological Seminary? Because if Jesus of Nazareth sat at the feet of the rabbi, if the... Judeo-Christian tradition at its best requires one to study. Nobody who uh, dares to deal with 
the deep issues of spirituality, the soul, the mind, the body, and the social relations of people should not sit down and reflect and, and be disciplined. Hmm. Even Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and have it laden, and learn of me. Mm-hmm. It says shout, nothing wrong with shouting. It says sing, nothing wrong with singing. Mm-hmm. But Jesus said, learn of me. And this is a learning thing. And we ought to, if the doctor has to go to school to learn, if the lawyer has to go to school to learn, what would make any person think that I can lead a church, I can engage people in discussion on deep theological, philosophical issues without learning? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and also Jesus said the whole law, the great summary of the law is that I should love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all, and with thy strength, thy soul, and underscore again, thy mind. Mm-hmm. And we need more mind and head religion in the black church. Mm-hmm. And that's not to be snobbish or uh, just left brain mm-hmm. or arrogant intellectuals. You got to have both. Mm-hmm. It takes two wings for a bird to stay in the air, mm-hmm. two wings for an airplane to stay airborne. And a lot of our churches, our organizations, are two one winged, and that's why we don't get anywhere mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as we ought to. You have been obviously a part of the NAACP. For most of your entire life, you are for, for sixty-one years. Sixty-one <laughs> years now, I've been involved. <laughs> and you, uh, I was, I was talking to to Reverend Dr. Gerald early yesterday, and uh, I think both of you are around the same age. You're out. What is it? 70, 74, 75? I'm seven, seven, I'm seventy-five. Seventy-five. Okay, so sixty-one years uh, w- uh, with the NAACP. You are the uh, chapter president in San Francisco of the NAACP. How long have you been uh, chapter president? What are your duties and roles? And, and you well, I, I have been I have I have been um, a, a leader in the AACP all my life. Every okay. every community where I pastored, I pastored. My first church was in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was pastor of St. Paul's Baptist Church there. I was called to that church when I was in graduate school at Crozer, mm-hmm. uh, my second year of seminary, and. Um, I was there for four years, and then I was called to the pastorate of the historic um, Pilgrim Baptist Church of St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And in St. Paul, I was um, president of the local branch, and and, uh, since being here in in San Francisco, I have been... uh, uh, President of the branch since uh, 1999. Wow, fantastic! What um, in in what we're living today with Michael Browns, the Eric Gardens, the Trayvon Martins. Uh, uh, I'm from Chicago, seeing uh, my melanated brothers and sisters being slaughtered in the street daily. Um, 
what is the what is the message, mission, and role uh, of the NAACP uh, today? I think it's it's the same as it always has been. Okay, it 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 it, it calling people to total responsibility and accountability. Mm-hmm. To be just, to provide our equality of opportunity. Quality education, health care, and to make sure that this criminal justice system is fair and that the uh, uh, police personnel do their work, the fairness, professionalism at its best. That's always been the, 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 the responsibility. You know, I have a copy of a speech that was delivered by Dr. E.C. Morris, who was president of the National Baptist Convention from Helena, Arkansas. He also was president of Arkansas Baptist College. And in a commencement speech, May the 14th, 1901. You know what he said? Mm. There's too much crime in our community. Mm. And so much of it comes from the breasts and the mind and the hand of our oppressors because they deny us opportunity Mm. of jobs, etc. But we must assume responsibility for ridding our communities of this crime. And then he said, further in another paragraph, and you young men must not make the street corner your resting place. Mm. The brothers were hanging on the corner in 1901, over 100 years ago. And they were on that corner for principally two reasons. One, the society still was so racist that there was not equality of opportunity when it comes to the matter of employment. And secondly, there were some who were so constantly lazy that they didn't want to work. Mm-hmm. And you got some brothers and sisters who don't want to work. They want to leech their way. They want to live off of someone else, and they won't take responsibility. Mm-hmm. So the NACP and any responsible civil rights organization must approach our issues in a twofold manner. We must still call the hand of racist public policymakers, politicians, and preachers and educators, and we must slap lovingly, gently. <laughs> the lazy hands of black folk. Mm-hmm. Dr. Nanny Helen Burroughs, who was founder of the Women's Convention in the National Baptist Convention, back in 1900 came up with a speech, 12 things the Negro must do for himself. You can Google her name, Nanny Helen Burroughs a terrific art from Virginia. 
and she established a school in Washington, D.C. that was named for her, mm-hmm. the Nana Helen Burroughs School. But she was right on. Mm. And she spoke of 12 things. But then she had another piece on 12 things white folks must stop doing to black folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the message stays the same. Mm-hmm. Well, you still have white people who are in power who feel that they are entitled to be in charge by any means. Mm -hmm. But that should be shared leadership, shared responsibility, shared opportunity. And as long as there's this thing called race... The NACP will be needed. Other civil rights organizations will be needed to be the conscience, to be the referee, mm-hmm. to be the coach, mm-hmm. so that we will live together as brothers and sisters, and as Dr. Martin Luther King says so eloquently, and not perish as fools. Mm-hmm. And what is going on in this nation today is foolishness, mm-hmm. is stupidity. Mm-hmm. It's meanness, it's arrogance, it's dishonesty, mm-hmm. it's unprincipled leadership. And it's happening all across the board, in the pulpit too. The one other area that I might cite here that I was involved in doing my civil rights activism is breaking down segregation in the church house or in the faith community. Mm-hmm. I led a demonstration at First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia, in 1962. In fact, that's where I met my wife, standing on the steps of First Baptist Church. She came along with a contingency of students from Spelman Mm. who joined the movement. We were collaborating with white students at Georgia Tech Mm -hmm. to break down segregation in that church, which was the largest Southern Baptist church in the Southeast region Mm -hmm. then. And the present pastor there, Charles Stanley, was assistant. And Dr. Roy McLean was a pastor. And it's unfortunate, but the Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845 over slavery Hmm. in Augusta, Georgia. That's where it was founded because they wanted to keep their slaves. And uh, those who were foreign missionaries were told by the right-thinking people of the Southern, of the Baptists, you can't be proclaiming the gospel of love and you got a personal slave. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, you're not going to tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. And that's when their organization came into being. But now they're trying to to right their wrong, but I still say they haven't shown enough fruits of repentance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just the other day they came out denouncing um, the Confederate flag. Now, it took all this time to denounce that symbol. Mm-hmm. But it's not enough to denounce the flag. We must get rid of the flag mentality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's still prevalent in Mississippi, my home state, 
the Southern Baptists in Mississippi have not come out for right now to say that flag needs to go. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They're still trying to hold on to it. Uh-huh. But the National Southern Baptists denounced it. Then back in at the convention the first week of this um, of this month, um, Dwight McKissick in Arlington, Texas, led that fight, um, which really shocked him that they finally came around to it. But the other thing is that there are some concessions being made on the part of Southern Baptist because it may not be so much out of the goodness of their heart. It is a matter of political and economic expediency. Mm-hmm. For the membership of the Southern Baptists has been going down for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Their baptisms are down now 8%. Mm. All right? So where do they see the future of Christianity and the Southern Baptists? In Africa, Latin America, and in the hood where the black folks are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's partially their motivation. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is fascinating. And there never would have been a black church if the white folks had acted right. <laughs> See, Third, Third Baptist, Third Baptist came out of white First Baptist here in 1852. Okay. Uh, First Baptist, white First Baptist was founded in 1849. And blacks were part of that church. And a woman named Eliza Davis and her husband, William, along with several others. Mm-hmm. Because of discrimination in that church, they organized Third Baptist on August the 1st, 1852, which was the anniversary of the abolition of slavery in the British West Indies. Mm. So Third Baptist came to be evolved out of struggle. Mm-hmm. Not just to be concerned about one's relationship with God, but about also our relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. And because that relationship was bad in First Baptist, they said we'd rather worship God in our own house in dignity than to be humiliated by whites in a segregated church. Mm-hmm. And the same thing was the case for the AME Church. Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, never would have organized the African Church if that church named for George Washington and Methodist Church had acted right. Hmm. There's a body of of, of uh, melanated people who uh, are upset that in 2016 uh, we still have uh, Christianity pastors and ministers, Catholicism, uh, if you will, fundamental religion. That they say, how how can black folk follow? Uh, a religion that was basically beat into them that they had, were forced to adopt to when they came when they when when they were forced uh forcefully brought here uh on the slave ships how 
how is it that that they are able to worship, uh, a, 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 if you will, a white Jesus, a white God? Uh, and and uh, I, I would like for you to be able to, if you could, to speak to because you have. The- well, I would say, how could we do it? Because we knew how to eat fish and get all of the meat off the bone, but throw the bone away. Mm. Historically, there have been black preachers like Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, Garnett, and even Charles Satchel, the first black pastor of Third Baptist who came over the Oregon Trail. In 1856, from Cincinnati, Ohio, Charles Satchel was a great-great-grandfather of Shirley Graham. That's W.B. Du Bois' second wife. Dr. Du Bois' first wife died. Well, this man, Charles Satchel, was a leader of the abolitionist movement in Ohio back in the 1840s, along with John Mercer Langston. And John Mercer Langston was Langston Hughes' great uncle. Hmm. Well, those men, these, Richard Allen and others, knew how to get the meat off the bone. <laughs> and the meat for them was Luke 4, where Jesus, when he preached his first sermon, he didn't choose no text about slaves obeying your masters like Paul did. He chose the words of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, who has anointed me, set the captives free. Give sight to the blind. You know that passage. Uh-huh. That was our meat. Uh-huh. Love ye one another, even as I have loved you. That was our meat. What does the Lord require of you, old man, but to, Michael, but to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? That was the meat. Mm. And all this other stuff of oppression and war and 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 uh, uh, putting the divine in one racial image is the bone. Mm. When I came to, when I came to uh, Third Baptist in 1976, there was above the baptistry a, a white image of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I knew that was sacred. That was an inheritance of of, of uh, people who had not reflected on this matter. But, but what did I do? I took my church through a study period and explained to them how icons got into organized religion and and the uh, the evils of it and. And even explain why how we got this image of Christ, which came from the Southern Baptists and from Leonardo da Vinci, going back to the, the, the Baroque and Renaissance art. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. You go to the Sistine Chapel there and and Rome. You see it there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So religion was depicted and defined aesthetically through the eyes of one race. And when that is done, it's dangerous. Uh-huh. But did I go for a black image? No. I said the image of the divine should be in the eyes of the believer. And we just have up there now over the baptistry a scene of water flowing, symbolizing the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan. Mm. I love that analogy and explanation between the meat and the bone on the fish. That is genius. Yes. That is genius. Uh, I have to ask you also about, uh, because we're talking about the NAACP, um, what, if you even have an opinion on it, uh, Rachel Dolezal, uh, what, what did that or she do to the NAACP because, I mean, she served so many years and, 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 and did such activism. What is your opinion uh, on, uh, on her? And I'm sorry, you, you, you cut out, I didn't get the name that you, I said, Rachel Dolezal. Uh, mm. uh, uh, yeah. Uh, up in, uh, yeah, up, up in Washington. Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, what is your opinion on 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 her and and? Well, first of all, let me say uh, in the historical groundwork, the NACP idea was birthed by a white woman, mm-hmm. Mary mm-hmm. White Overington. That's correct, a Jewish woman who, yeah, she read about the race riot in Springfield, Illinois, in 1908. Uh-huh. And she uh, sent out a call to William English Walling, Du Bois and others, to meet in her apartment to discuss the creation of an organization that would come to the aid of these oppressed terrorized blacks in the hometown of Abraham Lincoln. That's how it got started. Mm-hmm. NACP was an interracial organization. Mm-hmm. I think it was a personal quirk that the dear lady went about her engagement in the way that she did that she was less than transparent mm-hmm. and pure in her motivations. But by no means can anyone say that white people should not be involved in ACP. And mm-hmm. it's quite easy to inform me of a former president and chief executive officer, so eloquently said, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People knows that color 
comes in all colors. Mm. So the organization has always been an inclusive group, you know. Um, an interracial and inclusive. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure. In fact, when I came here to um, San Francisco in 1956, mm-hmm. the one person who befriended me as a child, along with the Mississippi delegation, was a man named Pete Loftus, who was who was treasurer of the Portland, Oregon branch of the NACP. Mm. Not back in 1956. Yes. Wow. Um, I have to ask you this also. You have uh, you and your lovely wife were invited uh, a few times to the uh, White House uh, as guests of uh, President uh, and First Lady uh, uh, Obama. What was that experience like? And 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 not just, of course, going to the White House, but it, you know, I think everybody has a story. Where were you when the first uh, black president was elected in, in, in the United States of America? You know, you, well, that was, I, I want to know your story <laughs> coming from where yeah. you come from and who you are. Well, let, me, let me say this parenthetically. Let me say this. <laughs> um, my first experience of going to the White House was during President Jimmy Carter's administration. Mm-hmm. My wife and I both were invited. And uh, then, of course, uh, President Clinton. Before President Clinton uh, declared his intentions to run, I was a part of a delegation of uh, several black faith leaders who met down in Little Rock at his manse. And he shared with us his intent to run, and he told us what he would do if mm-hmm. he were once again elected. And um, when Mr. Obama ran, I had already made the commitment to Ms. Clinton. Mm. And I and uh, I told my congregation, I never told them who to vote for, but I know as a person what the Clintons represented and what they had done in terms of more blacks being appointed to cabinet positions than any, by any president in the history of this country, mm-hmm. in terms of the best economic times that we had as a people and as a nation, and in terms of the track record of Ms. Clinton, she was involved in working with Marin Wright Elderman with the Children's Defense Fund. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she was involved in other juvenile justice issues in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So, as a matter of principle, I stayed with Ms. Clinton mm-hmm. in 2008. However, I mentioned to all my friends, including my wife, <laughs> if Mr. Obama got in the nomination, I would support him 10,000%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when he got it, I did. Mm-hmm. And even I was very supportive of him when um, he, for the reason that he stated, supported marriage equality. 
I got the National Board of NACP to back him mm. when others were going to drop him. Mm. I think we must be, be principal. Uh, Mahatma K. Gandhi had uh, what he called the seven deadly social sins. Among those seven dead in the social sin, one was religion without sacrifice, uh, commerce without character. Mm -hmm. But the one that applied to me in this instance, in this context, politics without principle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was on principle to make a pledge to a person. Ms. Clinton, and they just dropped because of race. Mm, mm-hmm. I did not know Mr. Obama, didn't know that he was running, and I felt that it, for me personally, sent the wrong message. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm going to drop her and pick him up because he's black. Mm-hmm. If we do that, we're defeating the purpose of judging people on the basis of their character and not mm-hmm. the color. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think, though, as history has made it so, and by divine providence and the qualifications of Mr. Obama, that he has two terms. I feel that he has been exceptional, has done an incredible job against great odds, even though his office was demeaned and disrespected, mm-hmm. particularly by that senator, the congressperson, excuse me, from South Carolina, mm-hmm. who during the time of State of the Union message yelled out mm-hmm. on the sacred floors of con- Congress, you lie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Remember it well. And the way that the, the caricatures that have been uh, created by publications of Ms. Obama mm-hmm. was very distasteful and very wrong. Mm-hmm. And he's met a whole lot of a whole lot of racism. And we've been invited to the White House um, on many many occasions since he's been there. And I'm thankful to God that I witnessed to see his doings such a stellar, significant, and soulful job as president of this nation. He will go down in history Absolutely. as one of the greatest presidents. Last question I have to ask you this, um, because I am... Um, uh, uh, from Chicago, and uh, for a brief period of time, I was uh, uh, on the media ministry for Trinity United Church of Christ under, under Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright, uh, which is the uh, church home of the Obamas. Uh, yes. During during the the campaign, uh, they took Reverend Jeremiah Wright's. Uh, one of his sermons and, and, and segments and and, and uh, yes. turned it against 
uh, right. him and 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 uh, uh, then Senator Obama. Um, I personally know because I've I've sat in so many sermons uh, and have interviewed the man. Um, you know, obviously, clearly, you, you know, I'm mean, one of the most brilliant uh, uh, orators uh, and, and spiritual leaders of our time. What do you think was the reason? Now, my personal reason, I think, is because every president always has an association of their uh, religion. They go to their pastor, to their church, and, and what have you. But I personally believe that... Uh, they, the powers that be, could not handle. It, it, it was it, it was already enough to have the first black family in the White House, and to have a black family associated with a theme from a church that says unapologetically black, unashamedly black, unapologetically Christian. Perhaps would have been just too much for them. So, so I personally, I just I just think that's what they used as 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 a means to uh, separate him from from uh, his spiritual base. What are your thoughts uh, on, on on that issue uh, and, and, and on that history? I feel that both men were victims of the racial politics of his nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's it. That's it, yeah. And, and I know uh, Dr. Jeremiah Wright, we were classmates in our doctoral program. Mm-hmm. Doctors at the same time, we were the first class of Samuel D. Witt Proctor fellows at United Seminary. I knew his father back in um, Philadelphia. So my first pastor, as I said, was at Westchester, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, his father pastor Grace Baptist Church of Philadelphia. And his grandfather was president of Virginia Union. So Jeremiah Wright comes from Great stuff. Absolutely. Great stuff, indeed. Uh, And I feel that the religious political crowd of this nation couldn't bear, couldn't stand the truth. Mm -hmm. And what language Dr. Wright used in that sermon... um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was, who was pastor of that great church, Riverside, uh-huh. in uh-huh. Um, New York City, uh-huh. used similar language, and he was talking about war uh-huh. in one of his sermons. And he said, he, he said, damn war, you know. Uh, and I'll never forget the sermon when I read it. Uh, but, um, of course... Fosdick was a white man, mm-hmm. even though he, there was a fight going on between him and the fundamentalists back in the 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the intensity of response on the part of white America negatively against Dr. Wright was greater. And they were both caught in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. But the truth be told, when Dr. Wright spoke at the um, the press club in Washington, mm-hmm. I was there. Mm-hmm. And one tactical mistake that was made was that the climate that he was speaking in 
was not, um, how should I say, the one for a Sunday sermon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got caught up in the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it gave the press the opportunity to not read right and not understand what he was saying. And they went to running. See, the, the one thing that really brought on the break was that message he gave at the press club. Mm-hmm. Not that sermon. It wasn't, wasn't the first sermon in which you talked about damn America. It was, I feel when he mentioned that Mr. Obama was a politician and not a preacher. Mm. And that, that, that put the words there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I hope and I pray and I trust that the day will come when they will be able to see each other face to face and be restored to their relationship. He blessed his babies. Mm-hmm. He married them. Mm-hmm. And it was in that church that Mr. Obama came to the faith. I, I so appreciate you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate you for showing up at the time that you showed up on this planet. I appreciate the work and the service that you have given to this country and to this world. I'm honored and blessed to be uh, able uh, to have a conversation with one of the most brilliant minds on the planet, civil rights movement, theology. I would love for you to come back on and let's continue this conversation. And... um, you know, I, I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity to the highest, but uh, I would like to add beyond just this moment that there are only about 13 million Jews in the world, hmm. six million in the United States, and as African Americans, we claim. About 38 to 40 million. Mm hmm. And I always raise the relevant question why is our economic and political strength not commensurate Mm -hmm. with our numbers? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And one thing I came up on. We don't have enough rituals of remembrance. Mm-hmm. Mm. You see, it's not enough to have Black History Month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just once a month, it used to be Black History Week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and let me, let me say parenthetically here, too, for the benefit of your audience. Mm-hmm. Since many people have the erroneous image of black preachers of not being scholars and being thinkers. The first great black historian was not Carter G. Woodson. Mm. Carter G. Woodson just gave us the organization for systematized study of our history. The first great black historian 
was a Reverend George Washington Williams, who wrote the first history of the Negro race in 1880. Mm. And I have a personal copy of that book that I got from my father's bookshelf that I've loaned to the Smithsonian and a Bible that I use in the Civil Rights Movement that will be on display this September when they open that new museum in Washington. Wow. Wow. And I feel that if black people had every week in the hood rituals of remembrance to tell the story that we shared it this morning and afternoon mm-hmm. we would feel better about ourselves mm-hmm. we'd be a more enlightened people and our spirits will not be so fragile mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that we would be, be meaner to each other than we ought and we will be able to even survive the vicissitudes, the negatives, and the evils that have come our way. Mm-hmm. Suicide in New York alone has gone up about 25% amongst black young adults. Mm-hmm. We used to didn't do that. Because mm-hmm. how bad it God, we, did, we, we were able to hold on. But what did we have? We had riches of remembrance. We had a sense of belonging. And we had our watering holes. Mm. Even here in San Francisco, we have lost that. Wow. The Fillmore, the Harlem of the West, is no more. Mm. Mayor Willie Brown came to my 40th anniversary celebration and uh, him, yeah. he, last Sunday, had in his column some of his reflections when he left this church. He didn't have anybody to pick him up. He walked from Third Baptist to his next apartment, mm. and he walked down Fillmore Street. And you should get last Sunday's chronicle, read his column. Mm-hmm. And there he says, as he walked on the sidewalk, he looked down and he saw the names of black leaders, heroes, heroes, who gone on. Mm-hmm. But when he looked up, he couldn't see any, any black images Mm. of a vital black business enterprise Mm. of a thriving community. Mm. He said it was about as white as as North Beach. That's a sad commentary. We're now down to about 4.7%. Since 1970, 
65 to 70,000 blacks have been dumped out of this city. Mm. The medium income for blacks in this city now is $29,000 a year. But for white people, it's 101000 Wow. I will repeat that for your audience. $29,000 a year is the average mean income for black folks for capital. But for white folks, it's 101000 What a gaping, mm. disparaging gap. And it's because of discrimination, lack of opportunity, uh -huh. and also our responsibility to make things happen in spite of. Uh -huh. I have a copy of a letter that was written by three women from Helena, Arkansas. Uh-huh. In 1892, 12 years before the National Baptist Convention was founded in 1880 in Montgomery, Alabama, these ladies wanted to go to the National Convention, but they were not able to go. However, they wrote a letter and asked Dr. E.C. Marsh, who was the national president, to read it to the convention. And in that letter, these ladies said, Dear brethren, in spite of the lynching of that man last month in Texarkana, Arkansas, in spite of the bad crop last year, in spite of the overflows, and the trials that we have experienced. Here is $15 for African mission, mm. for the redemption of the continent. May God bless you that you will have a successful gathering. Mm. And that phrase in spite of haunts me hmm. that if these women, these three women against the tide, against great odds could come up with $15 in 1892 hmm. why can't we do more with our bid in 2016. Mm. Thank you for that. Yes. yes, sir. Blessings on you, and let's keep in touch. Absolutely. God bless. Love you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. <laughs>